0: You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com.
1: Welcome to the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, episode number 654. Nothing will train you to be a better screenwriter than working on your next screenplay. Mongo Wilder. (laughs)
0: Podcasting from the back alley in Hollywood, it's the Indie Film Hustle Podcast, where we show you how to survive and thrive as an indie filmmaker in the jungles of the film biz. And here's your host, Alex
1: Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Indie Film Hustle Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. If you guys are looking for jobs in the film industry or need to hire talent, Backstage Crew is the leading career marketplace to find film jobs and hire talent of all kinds. Browse easily and apply to hundreds of open roles across production types and post a job to quickly find the skilled talent you need to bring your film or project to life. Find the next gig or your crew with Backstage Crew. Get started for free today at Backstage.com and you can post your first job for free using the code INDIE80. That's INDIE80. Today's show is also sponsored by Rise of the Film Entrepreneur, how to turn your independent film into a profitable business. It's harder today than ever before for independent filmmakers to make money with their films. From predatory film distributors ripping them off to huckster film aggregators who prey upon them, the odds are stacked against the indie filmmaker. The old distribution model of making money with your film is broken and there needs to be a change. The future of independent filmmaking is the entrepreneurial filmmaker ebook and of course audiobook. If you want to order it just head over to www.filmbizbook.com that's film b i z Today on the show we have screenwriter Paul Galino and he's the author of Screenwriting the Sequence Approach and The Science of Storytelling, The Neuroscience Behind Storytelling Strategies. Now as many of you know I love bringing authors, screenwriting authors, gurus, consultants and screenwriters onto the show to discuss their methods, to discuss their strategies because you really don't know where you're going to find that inspiration, that that little that key that unlocks your storytelling process. And in this episode, I speak to Paul about the science of storytelling and, and really get into the weeds a little bit about the neuroscience behind storytelling strategies. And as you guys know, I am a huge fan of neuroscience and how the brain works and when I found out that it was someone talking about how the brain translates stories and what, how you can use that information to tell better stories and to really reach an audience. I had to have Paul on the show. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Paul Galino. I'd like to welcome to the show Paul Galino. How are you doing, my friend?
2: Oh, I'm doing much better now that we've started live. This is great. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Thanks for... Uh, being part of
1: my world. Yeah, I appreciate it. Like I told you when we were off air, I always love bringing different voices and different ideas on the screenwriting process because you just never know what's going to connect with that individual screenwriter out there where they might like one person or they might like the other person or this book really talks them or that idea really talks them. So I always love to bring new ideas on. And when I read about your ideas and your approaches, I was like, well, I got to get Paul on the show. So I'm so glad. Well, thank you. I'm so glad you're on. So, first of all, how did you get started in the business?
2: I uh, was started uh, with a Super 8 camera when I was um, 10 years old. You know, dad's Super 8 camera and Mm -hmm. making a movie with our dog, the family dog, and then graduating to Super 8 Sound, and then Mm -hmm. finding out one day that uh, there was such a thing as uh, film classes taught at, at universities. And I was like, really? and I studied with uh, Frank Danielle at uh, Columbia University and as I said before he was uh, he's he's had a lot of very successful students he's a, a was a unique teacher uh his uh, stable would include Milo's Foreman, would be recognizable David uh David Lynch was another one mm-hmm. Terence Malik um uh, Mar- uh Martin Brest uh, was one of his students at the American Film Institute uh he uh-huh. so there were a lot he he had he was the founding director of the American Film Institute and he mm. brought his pedagogy from Czechoslovakia to uh, the United States through that. And and in turn, his pedagogy came from studying American cinema in Czechoslovakia and basically watching movies over and over and over again, because you could do that for one price sitting in the theater and then applying Western um, dramatic theory to understanding how uh, how movies work, and then uh, uh, his approach to teaching uh, was sort of like um, working with you as a collaborator on your script while uh, smuggling theory in, so you have a broader <laughs> picture of how how what your choices are basically making you aware of what your choices are when you're telling a story. So um, and uh, so that's that's how I got my start after I went to film school with Frank, I um, was doing the thing with writing and I was in New York City, so I was working on stage plays uh, and uh, trying to get things released in front of an audience and then moved to LA in 89 uh, and then um, was able to get an agent and he was able to sell a spec script and and, uh, got that made. I like to say the, uh, the screenplay was, Loosely based on a real story, and the movie that resulted was loosely based on my screenplay. But and had another film made a few years later, and I've been working as a consultant, working uh, worked on in, in feature animations uh, on a project that did not get made, but it was a uh, it was a great experience. You know, it was one of these things where they so, spent thirty million dollars on it and then decided. <laughs> I was the sixth writer out of about eight writing teams on the project. Fair enough. So
1: when you came it, to, L- so when you came to L.A., though, it was during the whole spec boom time, isn't it? It was the time where spec spec scripts were like everybody was making a million here, two million there. I mean, the whole Shane Black, Joe Esterhouse era of of spec right. scripts was that time, right?
2: Yes, that was the. Uh, um, the, basically, the '80s was the discovery that there's such a thing as writing a screenplay, and that you can um, uh, uh, that that's a viable option, and that Hollywood was open to those things you back know, then. Periods, yeah, uh, there were there have been periods when they were open, and then they weren't, and then they were. You know, uh, there was uh, a boom in this, an interest in screenwriting or what they called at the time, uh, photoplay writing, back in the 19 teens. So you look back there and you'll find about, I believe there's about 60 titles on how to write a photoplay. And the public was very interested in this. And there were manuals how to write a photoplay. And because they were taking from the outsiders at that time. And then you have this drought for many years because Hollywood became some sort of a closed shop. Um, the film school of that time. And then uh, starting... For a variety of reasons, in the 70s, things fell apart and it opened up and the new voices were heard. And that's when screenwriting was sort of rediscovered. And then, starting in 79, you have Sid Field's book come out. And then uh, the boom in screenwriting books, pedagogy, and interest in it uh, begins there. And uh, so, when I was in film school, there actually, my path is, my frame of reference is very different because there were no manuals at the time. I was learning from some from a master teacher, uh, and there were books on playwriting. Certainly, there were plenty of those, but um, it was it was something being rediscovered at the time. So what? How do you put this stuff together?
1: So you you've been teaching for for many years now. So you've had a lot of students. You've seen. You've probably read a handful of screenplays, just a handful uh, in in the no. course of your of your time teaching. Uh, what is the biggest mistake you see first time screenwriters make?
2: That's, that's it's an interesting question because my perspective is a little strange in that I, I'll train them initially, so like they're not writing a feature. Nobody hands me a feature script right away and, mm-hmm. and has me assess it. They have to go through uh, kind of like etudes. You know how uh, uh, musicians have scales, etc. Uh, well, we have writing etudes.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show.
2: You know, they're going to exercise different writing muscles and then they build up to a feature. Um, and then, um, then I'll start working with them on that. So, um, the ones I've consulted on where I get a, a full length, uh, are you hearing that hammering it's somewhere?
1: Okay. No, it's okay. Go ahead. It's
2: okay. We got sound engineers, you know, that's they'll get rid of that. Right. Um, the, the ones that I see nowadays, uh, what I tend to notice is that in a way they're overthought. <laughs> like they're so encrusted with all these different, you know, they read a lot of books on it and they want to do it right. And I'll have uh, stories that are promising and then, but I see that they're jamming it into some idea and then they're really proud of the fact that I, okay, I have the second twist here. See, see, I got it here and this is here. And so there's often a departure from between uh a conflict between what their story is and how they're executing it. So for example, I was doing a romantic working with someone working on a romantic comedy uh recently. And this person had uh a woman, main character, and she's going after the she's with the wrong guy, you know? She's with the wrong guy and the right guy's right out there. So end of the second act, uh, he's got this uh all is lost moment. Or, or Dark night of the Soul. And that moment consisted of her finding out that the guy that she's with is all wrong for her. He's not only not right for her, but he's stealing, and he's cheating. He's, I don't know what, he's probably got, you know, murdering puppies somewhere. It wasn't that bad, but it was mm-hmm. like, she makes this discovery. And why? Because you're supposed to have this happen at the end of the second act. And then I said, well, wait, wait a minute. She doesn't belong with this guy. So maybe the end of the second act is she gets him. You know, that's not what the audience wants. But it sounds like, from what your material, the worst possibility would be that she winds up with the wrong guy. So the worst thing that could happen is he proposes to her and she accepts it. Now we have a third act, tension, which is going to be, is uh, she going to realize in time before the wedding mm-hmm. that the right guy is right there. You see, the, the landscape is, I, I like to say all, all truth in screenwriting is local. You know, it mm-hmm. depends, always depends. Yes, you could have a desperate moment at the end of the second act, but it depends. It depends on what the terrain of the story is you're working on. And so I've run into that. I don't know how helpful that is. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing with, the other thing I noticed that I have to work with students on is, is dialogue. And the mistake that they make, and it's certainly a mistake I made, and, and it's a mistake that people starting out make. And I I can see that it's not about overall feature screenplays. It happens in short films. So I can tell you what they come with, um, is what I call Q and A dialogue, question and answer dialogue. It's, um, (laughs) a character enters the room and says, how are you today? And the person says, not bad. I didn't sleep much last night. How about you? Well, I slept pretty well, but I'm thinking of going to the store. Would you like to go to the store? I think I might go to the store, but you know, that's, we're one question one person questions the other one answers and it's emotionally neutral so we uh, work I work with them on how to overcome that that problem how to understand how characters interact and how you can avoid that sort of behavior in your scripts and then make them readable um, so that's uh, that's a, a mistake that I see and that that's what people do yeah. it takes a while um,
1: I I I realize I, I, when I was first writing screenplays, I'm, I'm by the, by no stretch a master screenwriter by any stretch. But when I first started writing, I did everything. A lot of the things that you were saying right there, I did because I was I read so many books and I read wow. so much technique that I was like, on page this, this has to happen on this line. So I would like jam it in there, uh, regardless if it meant it was correct or not correct. And I would literally conform the story around absolutely having to hit this specific point. And I found it, and from my own experience, that it is just, it's insecurity. You know, it's an insecurity of not not feeling comfortable with the craft enough to be able to just let it, let me do what I need to do to tell the story. Like, you know, with, with these master screenwriters out there, uh, even master filmmakers, that they, they take their time and they don't, you know, they don't have to hit certain things. Yes, they're going to hit probably the three act structure or something like um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I think has a five act structure. If I'm not mistaken, um, you know those kind of things they'll hit those points in good time, and as long as it yeah. works within the story, does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's to me it's because I was trained before a lot of series came out mm-hmm. other than Aristotle and
0: sure uh, po- Poetics of, of course
2: some other more traditional drama. Um, the, the way I was trained, it's you look at what's uh, the function, and what Danielle from the very first meeting, uh, first class, it's about connection as opposed to expression. It's it's it, when uh, take a step back and ask yourself when you go to a film school when you take a writing class, what is it you're actually learning? You're not learning how to be creative. That's not something that can really be taught that we know of yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you can create circumstances by which people can maybe be more creative. But it's uh, not well understood. And, uh, you know, it's hard to model with computers to get computers to be creative. So we don't do that. We don't teach you the creative process. Uh, What we do teach you, though, what we have learned a lot about over the last several thousand years is we've learned about audiences. And, and we can, if you know that your job is to connect with an audience, we can teach you about audiences. And I don't mean like a particular demographic, I mean a general person, a normal human being. How do people respond to material? And so when you think about how a story is structured, say, that's a term that's used a lot. By structure, I guess I would mean the arrangement of the pieces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the pieces being the scenes and information. Um, you you can see that strategy, you know, three acts, five acts, whatever, as a, as a kind of a subset of the bigger question of how do I grab them and how do I keep them? And how do you grab an audience? And how do you keep that audience? And if you know how the tools, if you have the tools to do that, you can use it in a variety of very exciting, interesting ways, and you can pivot between a feature film and a stage play and a series, you know, streaming series, because you know how that's done. You know how to get in people's heads. <laughs> and that's one of the things that fascinates me about this, why uh, I wrote that that second book with Connie Shear as a psychology, uh, psychology professor. It's how do films get into people's heads? <laughs> And how can I get? How can you teach people how to get into people's heads and manipulate them? Uh, And and one of the things I like to do when I'm uh, lecturing is uh, I'll show them like a short film that I like, uh, uh, like a four minute movie, and then I'll stop it, like with about thirty seconds left in it, and say, "Sorry, we got to move on." I'm sorry, you know. And this movie has achieved something; it's got them wondering what's happening next. And when I do that, you hear the groans and I say, What's wrong? I hey, I showed you most of the movie. Why do you have to see the rest? You know? Uh, And I I just showed this these images up here and found and it went out into that audience and it worked them over and it manipulated them. And now they're pissed because they want to see the end of this. And that's like amazing. And I love that fact and I love learning how to do that and then teaching people how that can be done. Um and so when we talk about three-act structure, or do you need it or do you not need it, the way I, it's about how you uh, define acts. And if you define them by function, what is the function of the act? Well, if the function is to create what we call dramatic tension, which is who, will the boy get the girl or will the boy get the boy? Let's not genderize this. We can, sure, we're in sure. the modern age. We can. Will the LGBTQ person get the one that they like? Yes. Um, Will that, that, person get that person? Okay. That's the question. Okay. And we, if we connect with the character, we're going to be, uh, tilted into the future. We're going to be wondering whether they're going to get that person. And then, uh, so you wind up in, in drama. It's called the main dramatic question. Okay. Uh, will, will the person get the other person? Uh, and the question, question has three parts. You pose it, you deliberate, and you answer. You, you don't need more and you can't have less. And so if you want to do dramatic tension as your main tool for keeping the audience interested in your movie, you don't have a choice. I mean, if the character, if the audience is watching something and they don't know why the character is doing what they're doing, then they're not going to be in suspense about whether they're going to get what they want.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Now back to the show.
2: It's not going to work. So sorry. therefore, you need to pose that question in the audience's mind, and then the third act is you answer the question. I'm sorry, interrupt. You. So
1: no, no, because um, I, I, you wrote this book, which is called the Neuroscience of Screenwriting, which is is amazing. It's amazing. I'm, I'm, I love studying neuroscience. It's it, it's a hobby of mine. As crazy as that sounds, I love studying Thank you. neuroscience. Good. And I, I, I want to ask you, what is it about the human mind that that example that you shared in, in your class when you cut them off, what is it in our brains that is this need to know what happens? This absolute, because you go on the ride and a good story, a good movie, a good book will take you down this road. And if someone ruins the ending for I mean, that's the worst. If you get a spoiler out or you ruin the movie for them before they ever get to watch it or ruin the book or anything like that, there is anger. There is like pure anger. What is it on a uh, a neuroscience level? What are the connections? What are the synapses in your mind that are – I mean, is this just programming over thousands and thousands of years, tens of thousands of years of telling stories around the campfire where now we're just – if we don't hear the end of that story, we could die because that was the original – originally the story was like there was a tiger who ate the child. And if you go around this corner – what corner? What corner? What corner are we to go around? Oh, I, I'm sorry. I can't tell you the corner. And now you're dead. So I, I don't know. Is that something – I'm just throwing that out in the, out there. What do you well, think?
2: Well, that's, there's, and it, there's one theory which is a little bit experimental. Uh, it hasn't been confirmed yet, so we didn't actually put it in the book. But there's a theory of mirror neurons that uh, Connie talked about. That um, this idea that when you watch somebody eat a chocolate pie, mm. the very same neurons that are happening in their brain, if you like chocolate, you know, are, are firing in yours, so you connect with it in that way. Well, that's advertising.
1: Uh, that's basically advertising. Yeah. <laughs> right.
2: Right. Um, and uh and I by the way I make a, a great chocolate meringue pie, you know. So just <laughs> so that, I have to pick that choice because it's, it's important to me. But um so but that's one theory, but it hasn't been confirmed. But the best the best argument that I've heard about okay, why do we read stories, why do we watch stories? Um uh, it's because it's universal, you kind of look for what's the adaptation in evolution. Because in evolution, in human Existence and any kind of life form, uh, any activity takes energy, and you're going to have to eat or consume things in order to have enough energy to do that thing. Um, and you don't want to waste energy, you could starve, okay? Uh, or it's not efficient. If you could spend your time hunting rather than uh, doing something else, you're wasting your time and you're reducing your chance for, for survival. Well, so why are what a, stories must play some role in survival? Uh, And uh, a good argument comes, there's a book called The Storytelling Animal by Jonathan Gottschall. And his argument is this, that um, we we mentioned in the book, it's um, that it's like learning. It's a learning, it's a way of learning about life without being in danger. That you are, it's a rehearsal for life. And it is a learning thing. You, you, like you just said, you tell a story about uh, this tiger that's over there and you don't tell people What's the lesson learned? Then it's uh, it's it's not uh, it's frustrating. And this process by which we become involved in the storytelling, um, there's other theories about that. It's, it has to do with how we, in, in terms of connecting with main characters. Let's say, mm-hmm. you know, why do we give? art? Well, uh, it, it, there's a process by which some would argue that um, morals in society are created which is uh, one theory is called blurring, that you'll literally, you'll blur and become another person. Like the example one uh, theorist gave was uh, this lady is thinking of killing his neighbor, her neighbor. Okay. And then before she does it, she imagines what it would be like to be that neighbor. And then for a moment, she imagines the pain that she would cause by doing that. And then their, their blur, their identities blur. And then she decides as a result, I better not do it because I don't, I don't want them to feel the pain that I would pay, or feel. Okay, so that's a theory of how we connect with people, and that's deployed by storytellers when we tell a story. When we connect with a person on screen, we literally lose ourselves. I mean, I know you've had this experience. Of course, oh. yes, yeah, yeah. You you're watching a movie. I've been in a movie theater where the power went out. You know, like, whoa. Where am I? I'm I'm in a movie theater. It's 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 noon. I thought it was nighttime because the movie. You get lost in it. It's very magic. So- it is
1: such a magical thing. It really, when it's a good story in a good movie or a good book, you're not there. You are in the story. You are. Right. Everything else just shuts down because we're we're literally sitting in a dark room for two hours, looking at yeah. some images flicker and some sound play. It's it's fairly a magical experience uh, in the movie That's theater. But anyway.
2: Not- Right, And there's this thing called the, the willing suspension of disbelief that you're mm-hmm. willing to, to do that. OK, well, Gotthall argues that it's not willing, you can't help it. If I start telling a story, OK, there was a ship on the sea, and the sea salt was blowing, and you know the, the waves were coming in, and the clouds appeared on the horizon, and there was, "You're there already, you can't stop." Feeling those things and hearing and imagining it, what I'm telling you. Is it the equivalent of saying "Don't think
1: of the pink elephant"? It could be. It, it, like is um, it basically, whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant yeah. right now. And you're you can't you can't stop it. Now everyone th- who's listening right now is thinking of a pink elephant. Even I told them don't think right. about it. So very simple. When you were telling that story, I was already I was already going in my head and connecting to the experiences of when I was on this on on a sea on a boat or when I was on, and I could smell the ocean. I, I, was already, I was already going real quick, and I wasn't even exerting any energy to do it.
2: Yeah, it, it, it comes naturally to us because it helps us. Uh, another uh, psychologist, um, uh, let me get, I want to make sure I get the name, uh, Keith Outley, mm-hmm. Um because I referenced this. he, he had, had an article called um, The, the um, Flight Simulator of Life, That stories are the equivalent of a flight simulator. For for an airline pilot, you're on a flight simulator, so when you crash, you don't die. A movie, you're, you become that other person uh, in the movie, in the story, in the film, in the TV series, and they go through all kinds of danger and they learn lessons. And guess what? You got to learn the lesson that they learned, but you didn't have to die in the end. You, You got to learn it. So even a tragedy where the character doesn't survive, you learn from, you know, you've learned, don't do that. <laughs> now,
1: isn't it interesting? Because as of this recording, the Joker came out in theaters last week and huh? it is causing all sorts of commotion. People are walking out of the theater. People are loving the movie. It is, it is a very, div- um, a film that divert, not diversive, uh, what's the word? D- divisive film. Right. Because, and I haven't seen it yet. I have have my tickets because I have kids. I haven't
2: either.
1: I want to see it it too. But the, the thing which I bring it up for this conversation is that you are following a villain. You're watching a person go from being maybe a damaged human being into a full blown villain, arguably a psychotic maniac who is arguably one of the you know greatest villains ever created in the scope of movies and possibly uh, in, in comic book lore as well. So people have a problem with that because you're now attaching yourself to a villain in such a deep, dark way that it is bothering people. And And I can't remember a movie. I mean, Taxi Driver would probably be the closest thing. Like when you watch Taxi Driver... There's a lot of people who just can't deal with it because you're, you're Travis Brickle. I mean, you're, you're, you're with that it. I it. You're in there. Yeah. There is nothing else you can attach yourself to and the filmmaker and the storyteller and the screenwriter, they, you're, you're Travis and you're going through it and you're, he's, he's who he is. So f- people, that's why films like that have such a diverse, uh, a divisive, um, a feeling to it and in today's world you don't get those kind of films so i'm excited to watch the joker and he's put out by a studio
2: yeah that that'll that'll be very interesting um the the usually like there have been successful movies and one reason one word i discourage my students from using that's popular is when they talk about the main character is hero and i understand like the hero's journey they don't necessarily mean hero but when you say someone's a hero you gotta the, the the impression you get, the connotation is, oh, someone who's heroic. They do heroic things and they're strong and they're attractive and all that. But um, we don't learn from those kinds of people. We learn from people who got problems and, and tra- that transgress and they, they do the wrong thing.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
2: But you can... Still, you can have a a character who's um, a, uh, let's say, a man who um, has an affair with a married woman and decides to murder her husband so he can get money and we'll go with it because, you know, double indemnity, That, that, that works, but there is enough there for us to connect with so that we're okay with going for the ride, even though it was controversial at the time. Uh, And there was questions about, I mean, it couldn't get made for a long time. And and there was this sense that people do learn from movies, and therefore we can't have bad people as main characters (laughs) unless they're really punished. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but they wrote and shot an extra sequence in that Mm -hmm. movie that they cut out. And that extra sequence was. Do you remember the film very clearly? At all, I don't. I, it,
1: not very clear. I saw it years ago, probably at film school. Years ago. Okay.
2: Well, the last scene is uh, spoiler alert, but it doesn't matter. So he'll tell you anyway. I, if it's
1: but, over, if it's over fifty, sixty years old, it's not a spoiler alert anymore. It's the on. Not that. a
2: spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get sued. Statue lim- limit. Exactly. So, so this, um, uh, what happens at the end is he. Actually, it's wrapped around with a, It begins with a flashback. It begin, actually a flash. It begins in the present, and the whole thing is a flashback with the guy narrating. It. And in the end, he stumbles and falls in the office, and that's where it ends. You know, and he's with his buddy, who who suspected him, and had to you know ultimately turn him in. Um, but that was that's where they ended it. But the next sequence that they didn't shoot involved uh, Fred McMurray's execution. Uh, he goes to the to the electric chair. Wow. And it was an expensive, elaborate sequence. And he's his best friend, is sitting in the audience, you know, watching his best friend being put to death for his crime. <laughs> and they, they realized it was a little too much. So they, they cut that out. But you could see how conscious they were making sure that we don't connect with, we, we don't uh, learn that it's okay to kill people from this movie. Uh another picture that I like to cite is uh, one that's made the main character committed statutory rape and is in jail for fighting uh fist fighting and people having, you know, assaults and also um uh he's he's a lazy bum and doesn't want to do any work. That's uh, one flu of the cuckoo's nest. That's that's uh you know, uh McMur- McMurphy. What a and, great movie.
1: Oh, what a great movie.
2: Yeah. But so you've got this flawed character in his own way, in the way that his, his tragic flaw is a good thing. He has humanity. You know, that's how the movies really twist things around. But we, our first impression of him is, and that's, that's something called the primacy effect, first impression. The first time you see him, he's, he's whooping it up for joy. And then he's going around trying to talk to people and helping them play cards. So your first impression is he's a good guy and then you learn a little bit more about him and then you find out uh what the kind of person he is but but his behavior is at odds with that so you, i don't like students to censor themselves from having interesting flawed characters now the joker i haven't seen uh the di- the reason for diverse opinions is um something else that we talk a little bit about in the book it just has to do with of course, what we bring to movies, and we do bring our life experiences to them. Uh, we mm. <laughs> have right, and, and so different movies are going to affect people in different ways. And I tell my students, you know, when I I pick movies that I show that I analyze, that it's uh I should pick them for three reasons. One is I feel that I have to feel that they work because I can't show you a movie that why how it works if I don't think it works. The second is it has to be rich in the in the craftsmanship, so I can point out different things that. The, the writer and the storytellers are doing that they can learn. Uh, and the third thing I tell them is the luck of the draw. I got to love it. And, and that's just me. And if they're out of luck, there's the guy in the next room, he's going to show a different set of movies. And that just has to do with what resonates with me in particular. Um, and there is a, a concept in constructivist psychology called uh, the schema. A schema is a, um, is a conceptual framework by which we understand the world. It's a shorthand way of understanding things. Uh, uh, it kind of borders with object recognition. But it's like constructivist psychology, which plays a role in how we understand movies, and which I think if you understand that, you can have fun, uh, is the premise of that, the argument is that our experience of the world, our experience of life, is not largely knowledge-based. It's um, based on inference, because our brains aren't, powerful enough to process everything that we're seeing all around us.
1: No, of course, of course.
2: Right. So an example would be if you uh, see a curb on a street, you know, a curb, the first time you're going to look at it, you're going to check it out and, and when you're two or something and you're going to navigate it. But once you, you store it, it's called, that's called bottom-up processing. You see it, it goes up in your brain. Then after that, it becomes top-down processing where you see a curb you compare it to their memory of how curbs work, and then you assume it's like any other curb. So you just walk over it. You don't measure it each time you walk over it. That wouldn't be efficient. So we uh, take we have those shortcuts. And what happens is that sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes that curb isn't what we thought it was. It's a different curb, so we stumble, we, we fall. Um, so. Um, so when we, that we'll get back to that in a second, how that plays a role in screenwriting. But in terms of how we perceive things, we do bring that top-down processing to the world because we've all had slightly different experiences. So that going back to Cuckoo's Nest, there's a scene in which a nurse ratchet the first time she does this group therapy and it's terrible. She's, it's just everybody's at each other's throats and she's sitting there impassively at the end. Okay. And I, I stopped it there, and I asked my students, what do you think is going on with her? And I got different reactions. Uh, different perspectives. On their, their perspective. One said that she was um, a sadist, and she's happy that they fell apart. Another one said that she felt that this person had regret, that they weren't healthier. Another one was, you know, there was a variety of these things. And no one's right, it's just they're bringing their stuff. So the Joker will be an interesting one to look at. Uh, what we identify
1: with I always um, I, I I always tell people that um from my studies in neuroscience that many of the things that stop us from specifically being like screenwriters or being artists in general is by the associations of things that happened to us in the past where you either associate failure and your brain tells you you're basically the brain needs to keep you in this nice safe box you're in a safe zone that safe zone is where you go and you'll only go up to the edge of that safe zone because outside of that zone is unknown and whatever's unknown is potentially deadly because that's our how our, our you know, our alligator brain or reptilian part of our brain works. So that's why yeah. it's so difficult for people to lose weight because their safe zone is being where they're at or I can't write a screenplay. I'm just going to do a short first and then they slowly build up the, the courage to like I'm going to do a screenplay and then – and if it's not really good or if if it's if someone beats them down and they're not prepared for it, they're like, okay, I'm going to go back. It, it's kind of like you, you're, you're always stepping in and stepping – you're always trying to – we're, we're built to be comfortable in a comfort mm-hmm. zone. And I always tell people to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the only way you grow. That's the only way you get out there and do things. And it's, And that works with writing as well because I know as well as you do, there's many screenwriters out there who live in their box. And they do their box well, and they don't generally jump out of their genre, their their style. You know, that's why I love people like you know Tarantino, who stays within his box, but man, he's jumped into every genre possible uh, and just throws his flavor into every genre. same thing with Kubrick when kubrick was was doing his masterpieces. I mean, he literally made the definitive film of every genre that he walked into,
2: right.
1: essentially. So, yeah. So, I, I was just I wanted to get your opinion in regards to the neuroscience behind that and the and the how it affects us as screenwriters and as creatives.
2: Well, I'm, cer- I'm certainly not a neuroscientist, so I, I won't zoom to go there, I, Neither, neither but, am I. But
1: from from educated oh, guess, I
2: have several patients I'm going to be operating on later today. Because you know, everybody's got to make a little money on the side, and you, you Neuros- a lot, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, neuroscience That's, is a nice side hustle. <laughs>
2: yeah. It, oh, and you could do a series with those man, <laughs> <Of> multiple <laughs> surgeries for the same issue. No, um, but there it is true what I've, I've uh, uh, that our two. The, talk about the reptilian brain, our two most basic uh, impulses are hope and fear. Emotions are hope right. and fear, okay? Right. And, and fear is actually what you're describing, stay in the safe box. Fear is actually stronger than hope.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
2: And the, the example that I heard from one uh, psychology professor was... Um, that uh, if you are in a restaurant and you get this you know a uh, w- fancy restaurant with a wonderful seafood plate you know with all this all the fixings and everything and you're about to eat it and you see a roach cockroach in it that's it you're done okay you're not going there you're not going to touch it contrast that suppose you're sit down to a meal and it's covered with roaches and you see one, you know, artichoke. <laughs> you're not going to say, "Yeah, look at that! I got an artichoke out of this." You, you don't. You don't touch it. So that's the example they gave of this hope and fear. Now, something else that's useful that, that we didn't talk about in this book, but uh, it's another thing that I think is useful for when writers work with characters, um, is this narrative theory of, of psychological development. Because you're talking about people that stay in the box. Tarantino is different. Mm-hmm. That that the idea is that we um, up till age by by the time we get to age three, we have developed a narrative of our lives
0: mm-hmm.
2: and we tend to notice the things that confirm that narrative and ignore the the facts that don't. And this leads to all kinds of neuroses. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm the one who never was loved. So I'm unlovable. Okay. Someone throws themselves at you. That's an aberration. That's not, doesn't fit, you know? And it's, there was this uh, episode of a senator, I forget his name, a Senate, U.S. senator a few years ago, who was caught having sex with men in bathrooms in Minneapolis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, like right. that, yeah. okay, so what, what was his story? Well, he was married and he had kids. And he's, he's a straight man, right? Well, that's the story he tells himself. The fact that he's meeting strange men and having sex with them gets ignored in that narrative. (laughs) It's like, oh, I don't know what that is, but that has nothing to do with who I am. What I am is a straight man with a family and all that. And in a way, this this guy's living two different lives. You know, one that he's aware of and one that he's blocked out. I can't speak to him. He's not my patient. I don't know. I'm not a psychiatrist. But you can see that process happening, that it's possible that a guy who's spent 50 years of his life, he's like 60, 50 years of his life suppressing some reality. And constructed a reality in which he was not gay. If he ever came at age sixty-five to realization that he was gay, that's fifty years of your life that you're a stranger. It's
1: de- it's it's de- it's devastating. It's Definitely. devastating.
2: Yeah. Well, so well you, me, we should put that away. So yeah, le, so
1: so let me so let's turn this into something for uh for screenwriters in regards to. The screenwriting great the screenwriter guys who's listening. No, because I mean, listen, I could talk neuroscience all day, but the <laughs> but the concept for for character development this is so powerful and it's such a powerful tool to use as a screenwriter to get into psychology and to get into almost the the like just the concept of what we just talked about. Adding that that sub layer that 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 uh, that thing underneath the. That underlining thing of like, I have to stay in this safe box. Perfect example, a guy who's been, you know, 50 years saying, I'm married, I have kids, but then I go off. I mean, that's... And and exploring why he did that—that's a story. That's a screenplay. Or or the person who has a, a wife and kids and he's, he's a, a serial killer, you know, on the side. And we've seen those kind of movies. Like they they literally compartment compartmentalize. I can't say the word. You know what I'm saying? Course, to compart-
2: compartmentalize. Thank you, sir. Um me <laughs> okay, there a little bit. Okay.
1: But they <laughs> but they put their their worlds in different boxes as almost a defense mechanism. Uh, for themselves, so someone like this, the the guy you're talking about, this politician, he literally was doing this to protect himself in his mind. Like that's that other story, right. which is his true nature. He couldn't, for whatever reason, the way he was raised, his environment, his his social uh, group or community wouldn't accept that, so he suppressed it, and now it comes out in this very strange way years later because it can't. You can't hold something like that in. It's not something, you can maybe hold it at bay for decades, but eventually it will come out. That is such a powerful right. a character the development tool.
2: The difference between the story you tell yourself about yourself and the reality, when that collapses, that's huge. And the way you can use it in screenwriting, you know, a lot of people like, I think, you know, creating characters, it's a, it is kind of a mysterious process. People come up with them, some people are very good at it, some uh, have more plot driven or that kind of thing. You know, they divide it that way, stories and characters are more primitive, but usually people try to write a background about their character. Okay, mm-hmm. he was raised this, he did this, and that's useful to, to generate ideas. Um, but the other thing to think about is not what they went through, but what do they tell themselves about what they went through? What is it? Because this is really important when you're, when you're writing a screenplay, when you're even plotting it out. The character doesn't know what the story's about. They think it's about something completely other than what what you're in the journey you're going to put them on. So where is their head? Where is your character thinking things are going to go? What's the narrative that they're telling themselves while you're plotting, while you're God <laughs> doing all kinds of things to their lives? Um, so in that sense, to, to give a little thought to this question, when you're thinking about coming up with a character, when you're trying to come up with the specifics of a character, um, what are the... What do, they, what do they think about themselves? What's their image of themselves uh, and their story, really their story of themselves? And, and we certainly, we do exist in a story. You know, we, we do that. And
1: it's a defense mechanism for our own, you know, just for us to be able to, to continue. To, it's a story. Stories are so powerful that we tell ourselves stories just so we can make sense of this insane thing called life. And I think that's one of the powers yeah. of story. It is it's a way for art in general is a way for us to process just being alive and just generally. So we're always looking for something to just, grab onto, and story is such a powerful thing. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, well, let me tell you uh, some practical things for for your students, how to apply this. That um, The first lesson of Frank Daniel, I mean, I have it in my notes from the first day of the first class, was that your job as a screenwriter is to turn the audience into keen observers of detail. That you are going to give them clues and when you give them the clues you do it in such a way that they're going to anticipate where you're going and once you've got them anticipating where you're going you got them and you can do all kinds of things with that and that idea was formula i studied with him in 79 to 82 okay in 1985 uh, a theorist named david boardwell actually took that idea. Now, he didn't get it from Frank Danielle; He did it himself. Uh, he came out with a book called uh, Narration in the Fiction Film. And it was it's very influential in narratology, in the study of narrative, in the academic world. And he, he applied um, constructivist psychology to how we comprehend movies. That, in other words, we're not sitting back and just absorbing. We're actively involved in anticipating. And that's how we go through life. I was telling you about why, how we assume things about the world. Well, I can give you clues. I could tell you a simple story now. And, uh, it's like this. Suppose I, I show you a movie. I, I, uh, you're watching a movie and in this movie you have a man and he goes to a, fl- a flower shop and he gets flowers and he puts on the, on the flowers, um, happy anniversary and he gets a box of chocolate. Okay. And he's, he goes, he's heading home. Meanwhile, his wife gets up, you know, she gets herself all attractive and negligee and all that. And, Uh, at home, and then she gets out a gun, and she puts the gun in the drawer of the nightstand, okay? So where are we going with it? I just tell you that much. you got a pretty good idea that he's planning to make love and she's planning to make war, okay? That's how it's going to read. I can pretty much assume that. Now, there may be some people who think, well, I really have no idea what's going to happen, but I think most people are going to say, shit, he's in a lot of trouble, okay? So then he comes home, and presents her with the flowers and chocolate. She reaches for the drawer, opens it up, and says, happy anniversary. And it turns out he's a gun collector. And this is the gun that he's been hoping for, and she's been saving for a year to get him this gun, OK? We have a twist. We just I just told two stories. The one you thought you were seeing and the one you're actually seeing, right? That's all a twist is. But I rely on giving you clues and assuming that the audience is going to put them together. Now, then I, it, then she takes a piece of chocolate. She gets sick and dies. And then it turns out he poisoned the chocolate. Okay. <laughs> you know, there's another twist. Beautiful. I give you that information. I just, I decide what information to give you and what to withhold. And, and that's one of the things that, that Danielle mentioned. He said there's really three questions when you're developing a story. When you're in the ideation stage, you're trying to figure it out on the outline stage of the beat sheet. um, The three questions are, of course, what does the main character want? What are they trying to avoid? Okay. The second is, what does the main character know? And what does the main character not know?
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
2: And the third is, what does the audience know? And what does the audience not know? And based on those three things, that's going to determine how your story plays. And a, a story can be—it's—it's uh, the it's difference between the story and the telling of the story, uh, or in, in narratology terms, terms the narrative, which is the story, and the narration, which is the telling of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example I could give you: uh, There's this—there's this, there's this um, man. He's at the doctor, right? And he tells the doctor, uh, "I'm really worried about my." my wife, I think she's getting hard of hearing. Okay. Um, and doc, but I'm afraid to bring it up with her cause she's concerned about, you know, maybe she'd be offended. Um, she's getting older and all that sensitive to it. Doctor says very simple, go home tonight, get a certain distance away, talk to her in your normal voice and keep getting gradually closer until she can hear you. Right. And then you'll know if there's really a problem because if there's no problem, you'll know. So he goes home and she's over in the kitchen and he's in the living room. You know, the door's open. And he's sitting on the couch and he just says in his normal voice, um, darling, what's for dinner? Nothing. Okay. So he gets up and he goes to the edge of the kitchen where the door is open. He says, normal voice, darling, what's for dinner? Nothing. So then he goes into the right into the kitchen, darling, what's for dinner? Nothing. So finally he gets right behind her and says, darling, what's for dinner? She says, for the fourth time, chicken. so it's like right. the story was a man is hard of hearing but he thinks it's his wife who's hard of hearing the doctor tells him to go home and do this test he does the test and then discovers that it's actually he's the one who's hard of hearing if I tell it that way you're not going to go it's not going to go anywhere right but if I withhold certain information I tell you the same story but it, it plays differently so that's one of the uh, elements of, of constructivist psychology you can play with. Um, and it's um, it's uh, it's useful to realize, too, that audiences don't – when they go to a movie, they don't see a story. They see scenes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they see the scenes, and they construct the story based on the clues you give them in the scene. That's all they ever see or see. What? But they create the story in their minds. and. Knowing that you you realize you have this power that you can manipulate. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So
1: the, the 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 master of this of suspense, of course, is Mr. Hitchcock. Which right. uh, and I, when, as you were saying the story, I was thinking of Psycho, which was a perfect example of that. He played on the audience knowledge of Janet Lee as a big movie star, and they right. thought and they went down this road with her. And they're like, well, she's I mean, obviously she's the movie star. Nothing is going to happen to her. And 20 minutes in, she's gone. You know? Sorry, right. spoil, spoiler alert, guys. She gets killed in the spoiler, shower scene.
2: 60 years old, yeah,
1: she gets killed in the shower scene. So now the audience has nobody to hold on to. And now they're handed over to this weird dude at the hotel at the motel. And now he becomes the main character in the middle, which was completely revolutionary at the time. Yeah. And, and you know, Wes Craven did it again with uh, Scream in a smaller way uh, at the beginning of Scream as well. Uh, they, they do that, like just kill off the. the, the but but the thing is that they carry you yeah. along, and it was this whole narrative that he the whole narrative that he was talking about, with like the money and she was running and then the cop pulls are over and it was all BS. Is it, he was completely leading them down the wrong way. I'm like, no, we're just going to kill her. And now it's really about this. That's brilliant storytelling. He played,
2: he played the audience. And I think that's a great uh, example. I'm glad you brought it up. It's a great example about, uh, I know you had another guest a, a while ago. Was it Carla think <laughs> he, he said, he, he echoed what I, what I think is that, um, if you if you think about rules, because you always hear, here's a conversation I hear at the film school all the time. <laughs> it like this: somebody we watch a, a student film and it's kind of underwhelming, and somebody says, "Not that our film, our students always have great films." I'm obviously, that, obviously, obviously, Paul. Well, it's yeah, at University, for God's sake. I mean, but, come on. But, all right, <laughs> yeah. So this somebody will say, eh, "Well, you know what? They really got to learn the rules of you know filmmaking storytelling." And someone else will say, "Yeah, but you got to break the rules." And then someone else uh... will say. But you gotta learn the rules before you break the rules. And then somebody else will say, How about lunch? Let's go to lunch. How about that? You know, it just goes, this conversation never goes anywhere. Or I'll hear someone say, Well, he broke the rules, but Hitch- it was Hitchcock and he could break the rules. What does that mean? That doesn't help you as a writer. Well, if you don't, instead of asking what's the rule, ask what's the effect. See, if you follow the rules, and I've seen students do this, they'll follow every rule and they, they want me to go like this Hey, congratulations, you followed the rules. That, that, Rules don't applaud you, and they don't pay you, and and following them means you're a follower. But if you ask what's the effect of my choice, storytelling choice, on the audience, then that puts me in the power position. I'm the one deciding the effect, and audiences do applaud, and they do pay you. So think about what's the effect of what your choices are. So for example, with Psycho is a good example uh, of of a schema. You just mentioned the schema. If you have a major star and audiences are used to seeing major stars in movies and they're used to seeing them all the way through the movie, they may die at the end, but they're used to seeing them all the way through the movie and the producers who paid money, a lot of money for that star, they want them all the way through the movie to get their money's worth from it, then that's what the expectation is going to be. So... Uh, And another thing, we talked about how audiences connect to a main character. Well, you use that as a way in a traditional drama, not like an ensemble, but in a drama, like a traditional drama with a single protagonist, uh, that that's where the audience connection is. So you're going to keep them interested because that person's alive. Okay? So you have a lot of powerful things going on. Um, And then, but then if you violate that, if you break that, like, like Hitchcock did, the question isn't uh, he was bad because he broke a rule. It's how did he get away with that? He didn't have the connection to the main character to sustain audience interest through the movie. So what did he do instead? And what he did, you mentioned, he dwelled, and he did it intentionally. He dwelled for a long time on getting um, the, uh, what's his name, space <laughs> to cover it up. And he, he really took a long time. They could have just cut away and it's all cleaned up. But he washed it out and he's cleaning it up and he's doing this and he's putting the body in, in there. And it's now by that time we've connected to somebody and we've connected to a young man who's desperately trying to cover up something his mother did. That's the story.
1: And we're to, or we're, is we're, it? Or is <laughs> it?
2: Oh, we think that. We, it's hard <laughs> to see it What do you know but you think it, and and I'll, uh, I'll uh, I'll, I'll give you one more example of this, of how, you know, the contrast between following rules and, and going for effect. Okay. Uh, let's say you wanted to write a book, uh, about how to tell a knock, knock joke, right? What would you do? You would go around and find every knock, knock joke you could find, and you would come to some general conclusions about it. And you would write the book and you would say, in order to tell a knock, knock joke, you have to have, you start out by saying knock, knock. The other person will say who's there. Then you give a partial answer. And then they say partial answer who and repeat it back. And then you give the full answer with a twist. And that's how you do it. Those are the rules, okay? So um, let, me, let me try this um, knock, knock. Who's there? Control freak. Okay, now here's where you say control freak who. <laughs> okay, so. That was I good. Just I like that. that Right. I just broke the rules, but I didn't... The effect I wanted was a laugh, not the rules. So That's I relied great. on the schema of knock-knock joke to get the effect I wanted, which was the laugh, rather than to simply deliver another knock-knock joke. That's so this, great. These are the different, <laughs> That's really great. But this is, thank you. But, but, so this is the world that Frank Danielle got me into, which is playing games with the audience um, and ultimately... Strategizing on how to keep the audience wondering what's going to happen next, and if you can do that, if you know how to do that, uh, you can do anything with them in a feature film, uh, and you can pivot into streaming. You know, you can pivot into uh, stage into one act ten minute plays. What it, it doesn't matter. You understand what's how to grab them and how to keep them. It, it puts you in a real power position. So we were not like um, by page 30 this by page 60 this by page 90 this we weren't really taught that or we were discouraged from following formula actually the, the one formula we were told uh, to follow was stories about exciting people told in an exciting way you know if you if you use that formula you're asking the right questions what's an exciting character and what is uh how do you tell that story in that way it doesn't mean that you're not going to see the patterns because often you will
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
2: Um, and if you don't have any other resource, I know, I know a really successful, very good writer who learned from Sid Field. She's read the book, and she's done one. Uh, and I'm saying I've analyzed her films for the class, and they're like, terrific. So it's a tool that can help you. Uh, we were just taught in a different world where you're thinking about, how it's affecting your audience. Um, and yes, we Frank Danielle did the three-act structure. <laughs> and I hear people say, well, Sid Field came up with the three-act structure. There was actually a book that came out the year before screenplay that espoused the three-act structure, but it just didn't catch on. I, I forget what it was called. But Frank Danielle in 79 had been talking about it for years. And of course, you can trace it. You can trace it to Aristotle. It's, it becomes explicit. There's a book called... Um, Playmaking by uh, Archer, I forget the guy's first name, came out in 1912, I think. And he described essentially a three-act structure. He said plays tend to be five acts, but they're really three, you know, set up, develop, and resolution. It's been around a while. But as I say, it's really, we the way I approach it, it's a tool for getting us into this mode of um, hope and fear, which is what sustains our interest. And then you you go from there. So if you want to use that tool,
1: use it. Yeah, right. And it's 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 exactly what you're saying is like, if it works for the outcome that you're trying to achieve, then use it. If you want to use a hammer, or if you want to use an iPhone to get that that nail in the into the wood while you're building the house, right. it's your choice. One tool probably will do it better than the other, and is less right. expensive. But whatever works for you, that makes sense for you and what you're trying to achieve, you should use. I'm not sure if that analogy works or not,
2: but... Yeah, well, I mean, if you want to destroy your iPhone, then that's what you use. You use the iPhone. I mean, that's uh, (laughs) that's the way. (laughs) And then you spare that hammer. You know, the hammer you save for other jobs.
1: Right. Uh, uh, Maybe a hammer or a wrench, let's say. A wrench. You could use a wrench to get it in as opposed to a hammer, but the hammer is better prepared to, you know, better built to do some, that kind of job. So I think all these tools, all these methods, all these techniques that uh, all of these authors and gurus and, and just teachers from throughout history have thrown on us. That's exactly what they are. They're tools, they're techniques, and they put them in your toolbox and you bring them out to achieve the, what you achieve, what you want to achieve. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And there's uh, there's other tools too, that I've, talk about with the students that um, that I've noticed filmmakers use to keep us wondering what's going to happen next. And sometimes you can sustain a whole movie with them. Sometimes you really can't. You need the help of other tools. But uh, something like uh, what Frank Daniel used to call advertising. I don't like that term. I use telegraphing. Um, it's uh, essentially telling the audience literally where the film is going. Because a, a drama, unlike a a novel, novel ha- usually they're happened in the past. You've got a narrator that tells you what happened. Um, drama, since Greek times, was something that was about to happen right in front of you. Okay, mm-hmm. They were both, they've been written in the present tense. They're instructions for actors and that set people about what to do for something you're going to create right in front of you,
1: of the audience.
2: And so, it's particularly important to keep the audience attention in the future, anticipating. And so, uh, you can have a, Something called an appointment. You've seen it used in movies, you know, uh, I'll meet you at Jerry's Jusiteria at five o'clock, you know. And then because film is selected, you don't just turn the camera on and run it. You cut to different places. When you arrive at Jerry's Jusiteria, you're not confused about that. You're not, you don't know, you know why you're there. So you, you maintain anticipation and also, uh, uh you're not uh, coherent. Um, another one that can be used is a deadline called a deadline or a ticking clock, you know, you've got five days to bring the Duke back, you know, by midnight Friday, or you're, or I'm cooked, you know, mm-hmm. that's, you do that, and it's done in Toy Story, I mean, from the get go, these guys knew what they were doing, the original one, it's, the ber- the move is in a week, right, so we know that we have one week to, that this story is going to take place in a week, and that helps us, because we've all, I think, had the experience of being in a movie, where you thought it was over, and then it just keeps going. It keeps going. Keep going. That would be that.
1: that would be Sorry. the end of Lord of the Rings. Lords of the Rings. Yeah. They had like eight <laughs> endings, and we're just like, "Are you kidding me, Peter? Come on, let's move on."
2: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I remember. I had a friend. A bunch of us, like we're teenagers, went to the to the opening of the first one. You know, to get together in the theater. A bunch of colleagues, and one of them had a just before the movie started, he got one of these big gulp waters. <laughs> but, you know, I said, just "You're like, not going to oh. make it. There's no intermission." <laughs> I was right. Anyway, um, <laughs> the, the, the problem is that the filmmaker hasn't signaled properly when the big moment is because we do emotionally save ourselves for these big moments. And so a deadline can help with that, that you put a framework around it. Uh, the one that I like, the example I like to give is, um, uh, what is that, American Beauty, where it starts out with a guy <laughs> saying, in a year I'll be dead. Right, it's a, there's a deadline for you. You know. So what it does is it, it lets us, Let's the audience relax and not wonder where this is going. You don't want the audience wondering where it's going. You want them to be anticipating. So if you tell them where it's going, okay, let's get there. Yeah, And that's what it's
1: like. So American Beauty is a great example. I love doing this with movies. I did it with my my last movie I I directed where I show a scene that's far from inside the movie, closer to the end at the very beginning to let everybody Mm -hmm. know, oh, hell, this is gonna. We're we're in for a treat, and you're waiting for like you know either there's a meltdown or a murder or something happens, and you know it, it. It's not a surprise that there's a murder. We all know that someone's gonna get killed, but like who did it, and when are we gonna
2: get to that point?
1: And now and now you're on the ride with them. So I love that technique. Uh As
2: well, that uh,
0: we just a, did uh, Sunset
1: Boulevard with my students. <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a great the player i mean if you remember the player um there's so many of those that technique is so powerful if you do it yeah. properly you 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 show that that little bit of information at the beginning you're like what do you mean someone's gonna die like and then all you're in so now you're completely connected to these characters you're like when am i gonna see the when am i gonna see the tiger come out this is basically where we're, we've we've been informed that the tiger <laughs> is there and he killed right. somebody, and we're like, "Where is the tiger? When is this? Okay, when is the hammer gonna time. drop?" And I right. love the, I love uh, speaking of suspense because again, I'm a huge Hitchcock Hitchcock fan, and I never, I've never heard anyone express, explain suspense better than Hitchcock, which is the the bomb underneath the, the under, underneath the table. Right.
2: Can you tell that story? Oh yeah, that's the idea is that you can sustain suspense longer than surprise. The effect of surprise is 15 seconds, I think, and suspense maybe 15 minutes. And the difference would be that if you have two people sitting in a cafe talking, uh, and then a bomb blows up, okay, you had a shock effect. But if you um, reveal to the audience ahead of time that there's a bomb under the table, then every line of dialogue is imbued with this dramatic irony. And every line of dialogue has a double meaning. I mean, when somebody... Says, do you think I should get another coffee? Well, I'm not sure. You know, and tick, 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 tick. Suddenly, that innocuous line has a huge impact, and that's another one of the tools is dramatic irony. I have to let my students know. You know, the characters don't have to know everything all the time. You can, you know, reveal things and not let them see certain things. Um, But what was the big rule? but,
1: But what was the big rule that Hitchcock said that you cannot break when doing that technique? Do you remember?
2: Oh, uh, uh, no. Don't
1: be- so the technique of, of the suspense is because he did it once in a movie and the audience was very, uh, very um, angry at him, which is you show them the bomb and it's ticking. But under no circumstances can that bomb go off and kill the characters. You cannot Uh let that happen, he goes, because the audience will be very angry with you. If you kill them, like, surprise, that's fine. But if you tell – and you torture them for 15 minutes and then you still kill them, you lose the audience. And I was like, that's – because he did it in one of his early movies. I forgot it was a foreign correspondent or something like that where there was a bomb on the the bus and we knew the bomb was on the bus and it was ticking. And it blew up and everyone was like, no, 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 no. You can't – there's a contract there's a contract yeah. we 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 have an agreement here you can't do something like that so i you know that's a rule that i i haven't seen broken very often i mean in a suspenseful situation you in that specific scenario you can't blow up the characters you just can't <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's good. I'll remember that because, you know, I happen to have a script right now that I'm working on where I kill those characters. I'm going to change that. Change right it now. right away.
1: Mr. Hitchcock said no. Um, I'm going to ask you a few questions because I could keep talking to you, Paul, for about another two or three hours, but I know you're a busy man. You've got oh. fresh minds. You have
2: fresh minds to teach. Uh, so I want to... Oh, but I wanted to say one more thing about yeah. the deadline thing. There mm-hmm. are a couple of movies that they do. That you, I've seen that sustain the audience interest in those primarily through that purpose, through that means. One of them was the Hurt Locker. You know, that's a, that's a, I don't know if you saw that, mm-hmm, but it's a countdown.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
2: So, the, the screenwriter there, he seems to be able to write these micro-realistic scenes. very vivid. Um, but it freed him to just Explore these different situations. As long as we're reminded once in a while that, that we're kicking down to day zero, then we know it's going somewhere. So we like, got hi, like high noon.
1: That. Like high noon, eventually, yeah.
2: High noon is another one. Um, Five hundred days of summer didn't go exactly in uh, mm-hmm. order, but eventually, when you, you know that when you get to four hundred ninety-nine, the movie's almost over, you know. Or <laughs> *Julia Juliet*. You know, there was a, yeah. Different recipe every day. When you get to recipe okay. three hundred fifty, we're we're close to being at the end. So you can do that to frame things, and then it frees you to to explore other kinds of drama. Anyway, i would say in, 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 well, and it's
1: and it's a and it's a kind of roadmap for the audience. Like at the end, yeah. it, it like at twelve o'clock, all hell's going to break loose. At three hundred sixty five recipes we're pretty much going yeah. to be close to the end of this thing.
2: So it's kind of chocolate cake by that point, you know, the really rich frosting, but perfect so,
1: per, so perfect example with Julia, Julia, which I love that movie, by the way, imagine if you've made that agreement with the audience at the beginning and at the, at the, at the, at the day 365, she's like, you know, there's another book I'm going to do. And you go on another, and like, and that's like, right. and you just, start, she's just like, you know, what I want to do another blog. And I'm just going to, and that's, and the movie keeps going. Can you imagine that movie would be horrible? You'd be like, no, 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 no. We there was an agreement here. Yeah. you can break that. You can break that agreement here and there, but you've got to be careful with how you do it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a, it's a, but yeah, I was just thinking of how horrible that movie would be. <laughs> like, let's say, high noon. At noon, they're like, eh, four o'clock. We're just now. Nah, they're, they're, they're a
2: little bit late, right? Let's.
1: we we did a shootout here but there's three other guys coming at four so we're just going to keep going like you can't
2: (laughs) can't you've got to keep that promise or people will will turn on you without uh, question
1: so I'm going to ask you a few few questions I ask all my guests and one specific to you uh, that I've never asked before on the show and I'm going to start asking all of my guests what are three screenplays every screenwriter should read
2: three screenplays screenplay that every screenwriter should read boy um that's you know what i'm i so closely identify the screenplay with the movie but mm-hmm. you know the style of like uh Bill, I, I consider billy wilder like the guy who could he yeah. i mean any of his movies is like a textbook on how mm-hmm. to write a screen mm-hmm. uh but the screenplays that he was writing were done they were called continuities and this style was very different. Um, or Preston Sturges. If you, oh, I love Preston, Preston Sturges. Sturges. Yeah, If you're going to read a screenplay and really enjoy it, any of the Preston Sturges comedies from the early 40s will get you there. And Sullivan's you Travels. Oh, Sullivan's Travels. Yeah. Oh, so good. Right. But just be prepared that it's not going to be in the master sequence, uh, master scene format. It's going to be in the continuity with the sequences uh, marked, you know, sequences A through whatever they were doing. Um, okay. The screenplays that I've loved, <laughs> there's a one screenplay. Well, one of my favorite movies um, is called trouble in paradise. Mm-hmm. Was, that movie. 1932, the first talky romantic comedy and arguably still the best one. <laughs> and it's in, uh, it's in a book called three screen comedies by Samson Rayfield. So you can actually get that book and read that. And I, Happened to read that script before um, I saw the movie because the movie was when I was young. You know, we didn't have VHS; we couldn't get the movie. It was tied up somewhere, so I had to exactly. read it. But but that script was so you got to see this. Students, any student of film should see this movie. Uh, it's it was one of these, and it's this is one of my pet peeves about a lot of films I see nowadays. It's about how the third act is like usually too predictable because there's a misunderstanding of what the third act is, but that's another podcast. But mm-hmm. in this one, for example, I, is that I'm reading this and I'm turning the pages of this comedy and I have no idea how they're going to solve this problem. That's I mean, the best thing. Yeah. It's uh, like all these different elements are coming into play. And it's like, no, there is no way for this guy to get out of here. You know, it's not even, can he run faster or jump higher? It's like running faster, jumping, that's not going to even help on here. He's like trapped. anyway, so that uh, Rayfieldson's one of Rayfieldson's uh, Billy Wilder um, Dublin is a terrific one because you can learn about indirection in the dialogue. You know what a lot of people call subtext. I use a slightly different term, but uh, how act the characters are speaking metaphorically, so they don't have to reveal what they're really talking is about. Is there is
1: there any movies in the last uh, let's say twenty years in the two thousands? That, that that screenplay, you're like, man, you've got to read this.
2: I don't know if I've I've seen some good, obviously some really good movies, but I the scripts I've read. You no know, recent movie that I not maybe recent anymore, um, which kind of breaks the rules a little bit is in Bruges. Um, yeah, I love that movie. <laughs> I like to show that after I show a classic like Toy Story. I mean, I've read the script. It's a great script to read. But it's. I think it's a conforming script. It's one that they wrote after. They you know animation is a little different. They yeah. When they get to the end, then they write the script that is that maybe the you know the stars are going to actually read because mm-hmm. it's synced up to that thing. But that's all right. That's twenty four years ago now. It's not within the. Yeah, fair,
1: fair enough. Fair um, enough. You know I don't want to put but, you on the spot. It's fine.
2: But but I've read no the in Bruges is very literate. I liked it. Um, but he. I'd say the script was flawed compared to the movie. because this, yeah, the ending It's always of the script... interesting.
1: It's always interesting. Sometimes the script is so much better than the movie, and sometimes the movie is so much better than the script.
2: Right. He definitely cut some things out of there. Just like Well, everybody does. I mean, I don't even know if you know, if you know Sunset Boulevard. There was an opening there that was cut out. Wow. Because it... Did you know that?
1: No, I didn't.
2: Yeah. It starts out in a morgue. With him talking to the other dead bodies, all explaining, "Well, how'd you get here?" Well, I'll tell you my story. And when they test screened it, they shot it. When they test screened it, they found out that people were laughing too hard, and then they didn't know how to take the rest of the movie. They thought it was straight up comedy.
1: Well, I mean, it's a, a two-body talking to other bodies. I mean, yeah, I mean, right. Yeah. What are you going
2: to do? So that you can read the script. I I think no, I never read. I never got to read that version of the script. But anyway, uh in Bruges is very literate. Uh that that's a good script to read, I think. Um but uh yeah. That's so, plenty
1: of good ones. That's that's plenty of that's plenty of homework for everybody. Okay. Now, what advice would you give a screenwriter wanting to break into the business today?
2: Yeah, well, that is um probably going to sound familiar to you and the other guests, but obviously reading screenplays, I've you asked about reading screenplays. I haven't read that many lately, but when I, was, when I was younger, when I was learning, that's what you do. You have to read the screenplays and find out how they read and what, you know how things are expressed. So you read a lot of those, and then um, you write them, and you just keep writing. And I am the, of the uh, persuasion that you write what you're really passionate about. Without concern about marketability, I mean, yes, you want it to connect with people, but um, the, there's a, another um, uh, teacher I've heard interviewed uh, named. Let's see, if he talks about the the pitch perfect authentic script. That's the term he uses. I think it's a great term. The, the pitch perfect authentic script. That's the one that's very unique. That the, the that is really your original voice that connects with people that don't be afraid of that, you know, write the things that are really exciting to you. Um, and, uh, so doing that. And then this, again, the seam and history that's opened up, you're talking about, I'm encouraging the screenwriters to, to take initiative and make their stuff. You know, make Fair it. enough.
1: Yeah. And nowadays you can definitely have the power to do so.
2: You, if you wanted to do it in 1965, you had to do 16 millimeter black and white, sync sound, and pray. And now you could shoot something that they can't really tell isn't done with a million location. bucks and yeah. you make it look good. Now you can, don't worry about the gatekeepers Do it and you are going to learn. And I'm doing a class, no experimental class where the students were all writing, uh, quibbies. you know, the Quibby thing with five, to, we're doing five to seven minutes. They're doing seven to 15 minutes, but each student write writes seven minutes of a, of a continuing story that we're trying to hook the audience in. And then we shoot it in January and see if it plays, you know, and get them. My, my hope is that eventually develop it in a way that students leave film school with a credit on something that people maybe have seen. You know, wow. there's no reason. You yep. can, right now, the model of film school is make a short film, send it to festivals and pray. Mm-hmm. Because there isn't mm-hmm. been, been a market for short films in a hundred years. It went out in the teens when we went into features and serials.
0: We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show.
2: The original serials were actually what we call quibbies now. They're about 15, 20-minute episodes. And that's what we're going to come back to that. So right. They can go, they can do that and have something marketable. Anyway, that's, that's a suggestion would be, if you're not in school, you could still do these things. And, and I think... It, to get recognized that way and draw attention to yourself. And I do think there's great many opportunities now that than there ever was.
1: So. Uh, what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn, whether in the film business or in life?
2: Oh, okay. So I've given that some thought. Um, the, uh, without trying to sound mysterious, it's understanding that you can, you can be living two lives. The one you think you're living and the one you're in. <laughs> you know, that you... <laughs> And Very you much. Can, Sometimes you, you learn this lesson that something you thought you knew you didn't really know, and that it, you have to reassess how you, how you understand things. No.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Now, what did you uh, learn from your biggest
2: failure? Learned from my biggest. Oh, I'd like to tell you. I've had plenty of those. So, I, I mean, this is a rich experience you're talking about. <laughs> Fair. Same person. I, I like. You've you've heard of the Duke of Wellington, the guy that yeah. beat Napoleon. He has a quote that I, I, I like to use frequently. It's uh he wasn't always a winner. He had this disastrous campaign in Spain a few years before. Uh he beat Napoleon at Waterloo and he, he commented on it. He said, Well, I learned what not to do, and that's always something. <laughs> yeah. And uh the, the biggest lesson that I've Learned from a, you said from a failure?
1: Yeah. What's the, what's, what, what, uh, what did you learn from your biggest failure?
2: I learned from my biggest failure. Um, To, I guess the biggest thing would be to relax and focus on what you really want to make and, and, and and do that, you know, because I remember the experience was that out of film school, I developed a, thesis screenplay you know and it actually got recognition and it got me a, a william morris agent and i was like this is really great i'm on my way but then when that didn't sell you know he was, it was like, okay what's the next project and suddenly i was in a different world because i felt like they were watching me like and, and i was being i was trying to create under these circumstances of desperately you know and it changed my process i i didn't know enough to just say, whatever, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do and you'll like it or not. So that, that was a, a failure. That was an opportunity that was missed. And it was because of that. Now, what
1: was, the, what was the fear that you had to overcome to write your first screenplay? What was that big fear that you had to overcome?
2: Oh, the biggest fear to overcome when I was writing that first screenplay, uh, I suppose whether I had enough story You know, remember, I was under the guidance of a master Mm -hmm. screenwriter who is, you know, Frank Daniel was not only a teacher, he did uh, produce and write a lot of films in Czechoslovakia and won Academy Award for Shop on Main Street in 1965 as a producer in that case. So he actually knew uh, the process inside and outside. Um, So I had that that, uh, um, guide, but still, when I'm just, when you're just, Trying to when I was just trying to get ideas together about how I'm gonna do this, you know, what is there enough story there? I suppose that that might have been it,
1: okay. Yep. And uh, three of your favorite films of all time
2: that one, you know, that that kind of changes, it depends every on day, what age I am, what it but I would certainly put uh, uh Trouble in Paradise uh, up there uh, if uh, defining it as a movie. Yeah, put it on. I'll watch it again. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. that kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly. What else? I man, um, there's so many amazing ones. Um, I did. I really think, from the point of view of pure craftsmanship, the first Toy Story is is a remarkable accomplishment. I was actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, invited to give a a, a lecture at, at Disney Animation a little while ago and nice. guess what I used that movie I said I don't know what process they used to, to work this but here I'm going to show you what they were doing uh, and it's just in 80 minutes you know with the stuff that they did um, what else have I I, mean, I love Lawrence of Arabia that's another uh, textbook, of cinema, textbook
1: of cinema in general
2: of cinema period um, I guess that dates me with a little older films, but um, that's uh, – that's, Those are probably, that's three.
1: Those are three good ones. Yeah. Those are three good ones. They've been on the show before. So it's uh, – except for Trouble in Paradise, I think it's the first time
2: that's been on the show. So uh, – but you have very good choices. Well, that one, I got to tell you, Trouble in Paradise, written by a guy named Samson Rayfieldson. I had a chance when I was in college to take a class with him, <laughs> believe oh, it or wow. not. Wow. He was 80. He was 80 years old when he was teaching that class. He would come in with his wife. He was hard of hearing, you know, and she would help him a little bit. And he, the first class, he told us, um, "Don't uh, think that you're going to, you know, get any industry contacts from me because everyone I know is dead."
1: <laughs> great line! Oh, that's great line. Right. I plan to no, use. I, I plan to, to use. I plan to use that in about forty years, uh forty or fifty okay. years. <laughs>
2: you okay. must save that one. <laughs> now, right,
1: where well. where can people find you and uh, find out about your work and the books you've written?
2: Well, I the first book I had, which seems to have it's had legs, it came out fifteen years ago, but it's called uh, Screenwriting: The Sequence Approach, okay. and we haven't much about that but it's a, a technique that i learned from frank danielle uh that one is available um then the new one is called the science of screenwriting uh by uh connie shears and me um and then the, my um website is called Writesequence.com. okay uh, and all one word and it that's if you know for if people want to learn more
1: Paul, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, my friend. Thank you so much. You have dropped multiple knowledge bombs today, sir. Okay, those
2: knowledge bombs are coming. But they're peaceful, right? They're positive bombs. They're positive
1: bombs. They're very positive, good information bombs. So thanks again for being on the show, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank
2: you. Take care.
1: Talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Paul, for coming on the show and dropping those knowledge bombs on the tribe. If you want to get any of Paul's books or get in contact with Paul, You can get his information in the show notes at IndieFilmHustle.com forward slash BPS 654. And if you haven't already, please head over to FilmmakingPodcast.com. Subscribe and leave a good review for the show. It really helps us out a lot, guys. Thank you again so much for listening, guys. As always, keep that hustle going. Keep that dream alive. Stay safe out there.